I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for some poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia in the Wexler studio at the Kelly Writers House by Julia Block, poet, critic, editor, teacher, author of books of poems, including The Sacramento Desire and Valley Fever, among others, editor of Jacket 2 magazine, whose new book to be published by Iowa is about the innovative North American long poem, looking at issues of gender ideology and the place of the lyric, and who I'm always, always so glad to say is the director of the creative writing program here at Penn. And by Eric Falci, professor of English at Berkeley, whose books include Continuity and Change in Irish Poetry, 1966 to 2010, and the Cambridge Introduction to British Poetry, 1945-2010, and The Value of Poetry, published recently in 2020, and whose first book of his own poetry, Late Along the Edgelands. Do we say Edgelands or Edgelands? Yes, both. Okay, I'm going to say Edgelands. Feels right. Appeared in 2019, whose new project is titled Poetry and the Problem of Music, a study about the conjunctions and disjunctions between poetry and music since the 19th century, and who has been spending the current academic year on what I hope has been a blissful sabbatical here in blissful Philadelphia. (laughs) Has it been? It has been. It has been for the most part, yes. It's been a great time to be here. Okay, good. I'm glad there was no, like, horror story associated with that. And by my friend Charles Bernstein, poet, critic, poetry world instigator, author of many books of poetry, many, many books of poetry and essays and other forms, co-editor with Bruce Andrews of the legendary magazine Language, which became a forum of advocating blurring confusion. He's still advocating confusion, idiomatic torquing, and the denial of the wall that had been separating poetry from criticism, who was born in New York, educated at Bronx Science and Harvard First Bronx Science, and as an afterthought, Harvard, where he studied with Stanley Cavell and later taught at Buffalo and then here at Penn, where with me, I'm proud to say, he co-founded and continues to co-direct Penn Sound. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for making the trip from New York, L.A., London, Paris. What it's is happening with you? It's great to be back you? here in um, Philadelphia. Yeah, after this COVID uh, not traveling. I traveled a lot in the last two months. Yeah. Tell us one thing that happened in L.A. poetically that is worth mentioning. Well, I, I read at the uh, something called the po- PRB, Poetics Research Bureau, which is a fantastic new space, uh, which they have music and film and poetry readings. And it's really the perfect uh, place for these kinds of nonprofit arts organizations That's to come great. together. PRB. That's a great pitch. You didn't even wait for Gathering Paradise. And while we're on a roll here, one thing that happened in Paris poetically that was worth mentioning. Well, in in, in France, I went there because um, two editions of the University of Rouen published a French translation uh, of my Amélie de Croix 
of uh, the, the language book. It was a fantastic uh, occasion and really extraordinary translation because there's so many different people and so many different styles that she translated. So it's nice That's to great. That and Bruce Andrews French. joined you and there, Bruce, I think? Bruce came and That's we were great. together for that and That's did some great. events around that. That's great. Thanks. Good to have you here. Eric, this is your first time on Poem Talk. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Do you have, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but do you have a one or two sentence summary of that new book that you, I assume that's what you've been working on this year. Sure. Um, I mean, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a big messy book or project at the moment, and maybe it'll remain that way. It's really about the kind of, what I think of a kind of as the continuing insistence among poets from romanticism forward on the centrality or importance or inextricability of music from poetry, even when in so many other ways, poetry and music went farther and farther and farther away. So it's, there's these strange sorts of crossing patterns between poetry and music where po poets, poetry becomes more like itself by trying to approximate music and, and other things throughout the kind of romantic and modernist and into the contemporary period. And I kind of track all these weird kind of torsions that happen along the way, or as at least as many as I can. So it's really a book about poetry and what happens when poets continually go towards music rather than about settings. That's really yeah. exciting and also difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting book to write, yeah. to start to write. I'm so excited about the book and also excited about the conversation we're about to have since it's something you've been thinking about. And Julia Block, so good to see you as so always. So good to see you. This is like our third conversation today, but <laughs> certainly will be yep. the most fun of those. Absolutely. Well, today the four of us have gathered here indeed to talk about Maggie O'Sullivan, in particular two poems from her book In the House of the Shaman, which was published in 1993 by Reality Street. The first piece is called To Our Own Day, and it was grouped with other poems under the heading Kinship with Animals. That may or may not inform our conversation about it. The second poem we'll discuss is Hill Figures from the section titled Prisms and Hearers. O'Sullivan's extensive pen sound page includes a recording made no doubt by Charles Bernstein himself, of a reading given in Buffalo on October 27, 1993. So here now is Maggie O'Sullivan performing To Our Own Day and Hill Figures. There is one I'd like to read, which I have already read as a preface to the short talk I gave. To, so to those people who have already heard it, uh, I apologize, but it's... I think it's my favourite of all the, the pieces I've ever written, and I'd love to read it. To our own day. Branches, boy genders, ground cell, mean owl face to the bone of a blue-winged filth. It made shine, Dolly Moulton. Sings is heard, toys is us, magician, us lutely tongueth breaks in rock. Us ills horn poor mouthing innards on stick leathern stoop in passage. Prized linings, great milks occurring, blood blizzard multiples, blazed blades flown, ill me, dot me, gloomy cloven cloaker bones, a branding math smudge, a common stuff, big broke dialeries on trappings strode. Perhaps just one more from here. Hill figures, nailed eagles, beryl. At altar, vasish, owls, blood, bed, bird gear, turbulent ruled it, 
raven, blue acquiescing tar thread, the air it will be tinned pull feather against coal. Crow shade, plumb true hemispheres, dwell juggling, has shells fan to resist. Skull a large, oft twisted, merry go superates, congregates, rolled a run, lettering, autistic low twindom, to live in the sky, to live underground, eagerly as little names of both, cow horned to begin, horned to grow new skinning torso tinning lengths. Fin bread, brinks, bladder on stick, hand in hand out a hand, sacri dosages, invert, reversionary morrow. Julia, let's start with you. She introduces to our own day by saying this is the best thing she's ever, her favorite piece of all. Let's try to read Maggie O'Sullivan's mind. What, what? Is it because it's so representative of her work? Is it just such a success? What's Why would she say that? Take a guess. Well, one guess would be all the different practices and methods that you see in one poem. You see the segmentation. You hear the sound play. You see the use of the page and the way the lines get spaced apart and stanzas get spaced apart. You see experiments with punctuation. You see neologisms. You see musicology. Um, you see lots and lots of innovation happening on all these different levels. And there's so much pleasure in the reading, too. You can hear that she loves the piece. You can hear the love in her voice. You're amazing. You just ticked off like 12 qualities. Um, so, wow. So you're saying basically it's got everything and it's vintage O'Sullivan. It feels it, it feels all-encompassing. It feels both representative and kind of like an apex of the practice. Eric, would you take a shot at the same question? Why, why do you think this is so perfect for her from her own point of view? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I agree a lot with Julie. I think there is a kind of sense in which this is a compendium of of, of her work, a kind of a miniature of, of the whole. You know, one of the things that's always interested me about O'Sullivan's work is the kind of play between, say, a kind of sonic dimension, as it were, and, and actually the space, the page space. And so she, she tends to have these kinds of um, arcing or, or kind of, you know, um, slanting stanza type form, or not stanzas, but kind of, you know, shapes on the page. And you see that really starkly, I think, here where she's, you know, just with palm mouthing, innards on stick, leather stoop and passage, you see the kind of, that kind of reversed stair step. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I often really like about O'Sullivan's work is the way she kind of kind of improvises over particular sounds and particular zones of the poem, sort of over a particular consonant, over a particular... Um, you know, vowel sound, and it's not necessarily simply alliteration, although it's sometimes that, as in blood, blizzard, blazed, blades. But we see that in really compressed, acute form in this poem, and I think that's why. Um, I mean, that could be why she she likes it. So, Eric, just to follow up on that, so you're other than the uh, the alliteration, what you're really saying is that there are. I'm trying to find the phrase for this. I'm really asking you for a phrase. Um, Something of something analogous to maybe a melody or a theme, as we would say in an orchestral piece, a theme of sounds. Well, I mean, there's a sense in which you know the poem. There's a kind of sonic recursion to the to the way that the poem might unfold. Not 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 in a kind of not in a kind of 
um, schematic way, but you know where sings is heard, toys is us. I mean, where that that the, the hitting upon that first SZ kind of sound cluster produces what's possible for the next couple of lines, right? And so the sense in which the poem kind of builds itself out of itself as it goes, I think, is one mm. one kind of important practice mm. that she has. Mm. Charles, um, I think I read similarly. You and I read these things sometimes similarly. We're both very sensitive. I haven't said what I'm going to say yet, so you're looking at me like, okay, where's No, I agree with you entirely. <laughs> I agree entirely I think we're with similar. everything you're about this is to a, say. This, this prefatory note is just make, to make you feel very close to me. Um, um, we tend to – we're very sensitive to programmatic statements because we like programs. We like, we like poets who are trying to link up to things that are happening and the title. So I want to ask you about the title. The title shouts out to me, not only is this my favorite poem, but I have something to say to us, to us, to, to the way we live today or to all of us. Yes, and in fact, I was going to mention the title just for that reason. So we are indeed in sync on that. To Our Own Day is is a proclamation. I, I wanted to also note that this, and I did record this at Buffalo, but it was... 30 years ago. So yeah. Maggie was uh, perhaps uh, in her early 40s at that her time. So young, No, I'm just young taking Maggie. her favorite poem, but you know, she had 30 years of work after. So would take this as there her favorite poem from, from this period. I think that's significant. But to our own day, yes, see, you know, uh, uh, see, seize the day. Um, it, make, make the day ours. It's actually unusual in her work, which is often uh, more opaque and... Uh, and uh, granular that she has such an explicit statement um, to our own day uh, and uh, the uh, insistence that what she's doing here is is making palpable, making present what's, what's possible and what can be ours. So you could ask, you know, who is our? What is day? But it's not seize the day, which is an imperative. It is addressed to, I assume, to the day, to well, us. Toward. But it's also toward. But I, I want to try on the idea that it's an ode. And I'm going to start with Julia. If it's an ode, what kind of ode is this? So interesting. If it's an ode. Yeah, I was also thinking it's very. the title is very odic. And the title feels very clear. But then once I get into the poem, the title starts to look strange to me. And all of a sudden, the syntax starts to look strange and unfamiliar. And I start picking it apart like two... To our own day, maybe own isn't modifying day, but it's it's the verb to own. Maybe it's um, or or an adjective to attach to day that doesn't mean something as simple as the possessive. So it it becomes a little defamiliarized. So it's an ode, but if we think of the ode as kind of a formulaic genre, it immediately gets undone by the adventurousness of the poem itself. There's definitely. A- a way in which it's an ode, and also the the importance is another way in which the title is important seems to be about the kind of specific occasion of of a particular day, right? Which I think, by which I by which I mean, I think another dimension here is is the is the sort of constant importance of of questions of kind of ritual and ceremony in in her work, right? Where we get like oftentimes it seems to be either first order or second order ritual that we're getting, right? In terms of bits of the poem that approximate, you know, the mantic or, 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 or chants or something like that. And other parts that seem to be kind of reflecting on the either undergoing of a ritual or the aftermath of that ritual, right? Which are often 
seem to be kind of violent or things like that. So I guess the sense there is the sense of, in a weird way, if it's an ode, it's also a kind of an occasional poem, um, mm. although to an occasion that we don't have ever have access mm. to in some sense. I would love for the four of us to do a close reading of the stanza that starts with sings, sings is heard, down to passage, down to that quadratic stanza, as in uh, William's triadic stanza. It's quadratic, it's four of them. But I would, uh, there's music in there, there's ritual, there's ceremony, and then there's, of course, the power of song. Um, as lutely tongueth breaks in rock. Let's do a close reading of the music. Eric, this is your topic. I guess you're supposed to start. Sings is heard, toys is us magician. As lutely tongueth breaks in rock. As ill's horn, paw mouthing. It's kind of staying along with sound, speech, song, ritual. Yeah, and there's a kind of triadic quality to that passage too because in certain ways there's kind of three voices at work there right them um, if we if we move a little bit above where where you had a start and and go to it made shine dolly molten then you know I, I don't quite know the pronoun reference for it right i mean we're not i'm not quite sure of that but that seems to be a voice and then we get the kind of you know that kind of sonic play that that we actually don't that kind of sonic play with the sort of is us toys we don't see that all that much in in this book, I don't think that's, I think this is the only time that appears there. Um, and then we get that kind of description of either an animal doing something, right? Or a ritualistic or animalistic kind of ritual happening, right? Um, and so I think I, I would, I would think of the kind of, as a kind of three-part form where there's a kind of prelude, a kind of introductory moment with that line, it made shine. And then the kind of the, you know, the thing itself, the actual, you know, song singing itself. And I think that's in interesting because we don't get a really subject there. Sings is heard. We, you know, we don't get a, we don't get a subject until down with kind of us, but we don't even get certain verbs and subjects connected in the usual ways. And then we kind of seems to pull back or zoom out a little bit and get palm mouthing and so forth. For me, O'Sullivan is one of the greatest poets of, of my generation uh, because of her ability to take what would seem to be disparate and in irreconcilable sound elements. And this, this Erica is quite right. She doesn't have it, – it, it doesn't read through in any conventional way that you could talk about sounds in terms of vowels, rhymes every once in a while um, and, uh, and make it sing, which I come back to in a second because it relates to this, this word. It reminds me, as I said in my essay on her work of – a distinction that Andrew Welsh makes. He has a book called Rhythm of English Poetry in which he contrasts song melos with charm melos. So song melos is what we mostly associate with, with in fact, popular song, but also with traditional iambic pentameter. But charm melos is like double bubble boil and trouble. It spells. It's what uh, the house of the shaman would be incanted. And it's necessarily turbulent, but it actually produces action. And uh, in order to understand the music, the rhythmic propulsion in her work, it, it's, it's necessary to hear that it doesn't make conventional melodic sense that it has such a strong rhythmic quality to it. You can't exactly point to what the musical elements would be, but it sort of all boils together and it has this powerful overall melodic charm 
to it. And I think this is made very clear when she says in this poem, which is, after all, as you say, Al, somewhat thematic, it made shine duly molten. So um, duly molten, excuse me, not duly, which is my mistake, dully. I keep thinking it's dully. Yeah, so but when dully, she says the line, you do, can't even hear do, dully. Do, dully molten, she says. Dully molten. Like, sort of like Dolly Parton. Yeah. Dully molten, because it's all sound echoes. The it, I call it echo-poetics now. The whole system of O'Sullivan's work is e echo-poetics. Everything echoes everything else, and it makes you hear echo, echoes e that aren't there. E-C-H-O. Yes. yes. But, I mean, uh, 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 Dully Moulton sounds, you know, bad, but she's saying it makes shine, so it, it, it transforms what's, what's, what's Dully Moulton, Moulton being in, in co-aid, and makes it shine. And of course, the listeners may not understand that these lines that we're talking about that end in the S sound actually are spelled with a Z. So the Z adds, it's not sings, it sings. So it brings to mind singe because it's a kind of melton or molten quality. Cow, horned to begin, horned to grow new skinning, torso tinning lengths. Thin bread, brinks, bladder on stick, hand in hand out a hand, sacri dosages, invert, reversionary morrow. Well, there's an animal here, Julia, somewhere in the background. This is the section of the book in the House of the Shaman, where it's animals are animals, yeah. considered. We have the hints of an animal. We don't know where we are. We may simply be in the mouth and tongue of the poet, but... I mean, I see an instrument in the line innards on stick, um, and maybe another instrument in leathern stoop. And I see an instrument, and then I see these other, you know, objects of music or tropes of music. Um, so there's like a denotative thing happening with music here, also with sings, heard, uh, lutely, tongueth, breaks, even when you think about the the idea of, of a break in music, horn, of course, mouthing, um, and then innards on stick, I see um, I see a bow strung with cat sure. gut, or, gut or whatever. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, leathern stoop. It would take me a few more minutes to figure out what that might be. So but, can we do it, you know, lightly, carefully, an anthropological reading? Uh, this is thinking about... Uh, early human music making, uh, something, some, or, some origin, or of contemporary. Sound. I think I don't even think it needs to be, you know, an um, early or or could be across time. It could be across different spaces, which helps us get back to the title. If this is ancient and modern at the same time, right. Eric, help us out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I do think, you know, it's hard not to eventually come to the anthropological um, in some senses or at least, in, you know, where she's – at least in this kind of poetic dimension where she's thinking about the long, long history of poets as as kind of cultural actors, right? You know, making things happen via chant, via song. Shamanistically. Um, or even just linguistically, right? Or, or musically. I mean, so I think there's always that happening and, and I think one of the interesting kind of tensions in – in all of her work, is this kind of the, the kind of commitment to the kind of <laughs> not 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 in a contemporary sense actuality of of that practice, right? Like poets don't make stuff happen in that way anymore. But I think she really wants to think about and really take seriously the whole long history of human 
culture has been kind of shaped by how poets have kind of marked and 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 kind of made passage through certain kinds of cultural temporal space, right? And I think that's what's kind of happening here. And so there's both, I mean, there's music happening, but there might also be kind of sacrifice happening and there might also be some sort of violence or death happening. And and you get that kind of, um, it's kind of wrapped up in, in a sense there. Let's turn to Hill figures and there's some commonalities. We have a bladder on stick. Yeah, So exactly. we were just talking about that. We have birds and we have traditional at least agrarian superstitious uses of birds, the nailed eagles. Um, and, and we have these figures. So who are the hill figures? There's a kind of a, a constant desire to kind of decipher, but also the constant refusal of the same in the same poems. And yet it becomes, it's always, I mean, she gives us things to see. Yeah. And she gives us kind of remarkable things to see. And I mean, the other thing that we get, which is all, which is so interesting, and I think this is the kind of, the, the way I think about the hill figure, it isn't simply, it, it's figures on hills, say, um, what, but it's also the sense of a kind of, um, for lack of a better word, and I don't, and, you know, I don't know if it's the best word, but kind of she gives us a kind of diegesis, right, where we get this kind of space mapped out for us that 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 isn't something that we would, you know, get in a normal novel or something like that. But part of the problem that I think we're presented with would be like, how would we see hill figures? Were we given hill figures to see? Um, and I think with that, you know, because it's not crow that we're seeing; it's crow shade, right? And it's we're you know we're getting all of these kinds of kind of kind of refractions to, to, to be seeing. And then all this, all, the other thing is all this movement. So one of the things I think about the hill figures is that they're always in motion, which isn't quite, you know, which isn't like a simple hill figure because we're watching these birds and, and whatever else in motion. And we're getting all these scalar shifts and also our, our, our you know, imaginative eye, as it were, I guess, is taken, is taken all over the place, right? Where we're kind of asked to, um, you know, the, at the end of the first page there on 54, you know, congregates, you know, superates, congregates, roll to run, lettering, you know, to live in the sky, to live underground. We're asked to do these kind of pretty massive shifts. In, and lettering? Why is that word there? I guess that would be another way to think about hill figures, right? Like, I mean, that becomes another form of the hill figures is the letters that makes up, you know, in a, in a kind of too easy turn. But I think there's something about the scriptive happening there, too. Charles, does lettering maybe have something to do with what is for me the most exciting moment uh, a few lines down eagerly as little names of both there's something about naming well you know f- f- figuration itself is one of the things that we're talking about at the that's in, the other in, thing hill figures is right figuration Fig- well right? because figuration as in representation versus abstraction so the, the discussion about what hill figures would be it also uh, uh, could suggest what lettering is when you can read weed lettering. So le- legibility itself. But I mean, also it's figuring out. You don't want to figure oh. out the poem, but she's got figure in it. And it's not it's it's not abstract or non-figurative writing. On the contrary, it's remarkably concrete, remarkably concatenated, uh, remarkably dense, remarkably clotted. And she's got many of terms f- for that, like tar... And, uh, and 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 tinned, um, you know, and it, it, well, to make a very great leap in a sense uh, of to a poet of a slightly older generation than than uh, O'Sullivan, Clark Coolidge in his early work, very important early work, which has mineral and sedimentary 
qualities you can also associate it with, with um, Smithson, that you have this series of almost different rock or geologic formations that you put on and on, especially in the maintains. Uh, Sullivan, through some really kind of magical quality, makes this sing. Whereas in Coolidge, it's really sedimented, but she somehow, through her clotting, manages to create this almost, as she says, and it's, I suppose, a volatile thing, autistic low, twindom. So the autism is itself figured within this charm that is the poem. Wow. So we have three figurings. We have the figures, meaning objects or entities or beings to be seen. We have figuration or resistance to figuration, and we have figuring as in summing, totaling, or understanding. Okay, Julia, so that works. All three of those work. Go anywhere with this then. Yeah, I'm just, I'm dazzled by the capitalization and the the way the capitalization carves and shapes the sound of the poem, and you can really hear that in the recording, declares some of these words to be proper nouns or names, but also interrupts enjambment and hyphenation and calls our attention to these points of detail in the poem. Um, Charles used the word clotting, um, and there's a way that capitalization just does so much both to encourage and interrupt figuration and naming. Can you tell us an example of where that interruption takes place? Well, Raven gets capitalized pretty quickly on and early in the poem, but it's followed by it, comma. (laughs) So it, comma, is meant to follow quite closely on the heels of Raven, but Raven gets capitalized, so it's like, is it a proper name? Is this a person? Is this a a, fig, a major figure, um, a, a character, a big shape? Um, is the comma dwelling, hanging there, actually unattached to what comes next? So I guess what I'm saying has to do with the way the poem looks on the page, but also how the sound gets shaped and how the typography of the poem and the choices around the lettering how those choices affect this poem's thesis about about figuration. Big question for all of you. Well, I mean, Raven could conceivably be a reference to Poe because Poe is really the supernal poet of of the kind of rhythm that I'm talking about that that O'Sullivan is interested in. You have uh, what's sometimes thought of as parataxis or, or juxtaposition of the phrases, what I've been referring to before, uh, as opposed to things that are connected, or you could just say lists, um, such as the opening, you know, three phrases or um, nailed eagles, barrel, after vasish, owls, blood, bed. In fact, the whole bird gear, turbulent rule. These all could be understood as separate things. But when she reads them, and we're not really talking enough about the the, the reading, but of course we all heard that. It sounds just like you can't can't even think about any of these things. It just sounds like a that it all works together uh, and and becomes this syncretic thing. And here I think there are always clues if you uh, go closely to the individual words. So for example, barrel is uh, 
an, an, an emerald or something like that and it's, it's vitreous. So that this idea of an emerald or vitreous or, or stone, that you opaque stone that you look into, which also could be understood as a magical or incantatory thing, seems to be partly what's being uh, – uh, de- de- I would say deployed because it is a kind of deploying of these sediments that nonetheless are made to – um, are melted together into this, you know, another word she uses in the previous poem we talked about is smudge, which I think is a, another interesting word because smudge takes things that are separate, objects that are separate in the visual field. When they're smudged, uh, uh, the figure in the ground d- disappears and it creates the sonic. So it's kind of sonic smudging of the separation. Technically, this is a very difficult thing to do, to take things that are as disjunct as she's talking about and as specific and to have them bounce off one another in this incredible rhythmic intensity that that she creates. You know, I think the punctuation is so... I think it's so... Poets who resist so strenuously anything like, you know, normative or expected syntax and grammar who also still use punctuation a lot fascinate me because, you know, the, the, the periods and commas and dashes are doing something other than what we expect. And, and one of the things that's interesting and kind of picking up on what you were saying before, Julia, is, you know, we, we get a period at the end of page 55 with which, you know, it's kind of a big ending, right? It kind of, it does, I mean, it's, unless we count the line on the page 54. The end of the Palm Hill figures. Well, right. Unless we count that kind of premonitory line on 54, the period, air, period, it, period will be tinned, that that line. The only kind of, say, <laughs> punctuational period, as it were, comes at the end of page 55, um, the end of the reading, and we get that big, what I think of as a big ending, right? Like, you know, invert reversionary morrow, right? This kind of, just like um, to our own day kind of has one of those, you know, like the end of Hyperion, you know, like an on he flared. Instead of that, we get into our own day, we get big, you know, big broke diaries on trapping strode. And we get the sense of the, the ending of the poem immediately starting a new one. And then at the end of, or kind of at the end of Hill Figures, we get Morrow, which is pointing towards the next day. But what's so fascinating about the, that the reading is that according to the, according to this book, she doesn't read the whole poem in the reading in the 93 reading, right? There's a whole other page. So it's interesting that the bit that she doesn't read, which, you know, is the next page, starts birth, right? And then has a whole nother kind of, it's a whole nother poem. And so there's this interesting sense in which the poem that we have on the Penn Sound Archive that we heard at the start of this session is, you know, more or less about two thirds of the text that's presented as the poem in, in the House of the Shaman. And it's interesting to think about and there's there's certain kinds of logics to what to why that might make a certain sense. I have no idea what Sullivan meant to or didn't mean to do in 1993, but it's really interesting that she she stops that reading on Morrow, and then what doesn't come is <laughs> is the birth on the next page. Yeah, but presumably uh, the I, I forgot when the House of the Shaman was was published, but it's it's quite a bit later, isn't it? 1993. It is That's around the, around the time that you had her at Buffalo. Yeah, because I was wondering if this isn't just a later edition. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I, yeah, and I don't. I mean, it's it, yeah. it's whatever it is. It's nothing but fascinating, right? And both morrow and birth are terms of futurity. Yeah, but they're interrupted by this page and truncated yeah. in that reading. So, where does this? I mean, Charles has made a case that this is central. This that O'Sullivan's work is central to for lack of a better phrase, what we would call sort of sound-centered poetry. Um, 
So where does it fit for those for people who are just starting to explore, who are interested in this, maybe just picked up this poem talk episode, and have never heard poetry like this? Let's 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 inform our listeners. Where does it fit? What's it like? Where does it come from? Well, one thing to emphasize in in that respect is that it comes from the north within the British Isles or Great Britain so that it's poetry of Ireland or or northern England. And uh, this this, uh, contesting of the the southern and the the southern hegemony, that is to say the dominance of of southern British English is something that uh, Sullivan is very conscious of. And in a way, she's seizing back the day of this language with different kinds of sound patterning and different kinds of, 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 of words. So just as much as you could talk about going back to an Anglo-Saxon as opposed to a Roman, which doesn't exactly do that, or Northumbrian. It's a, it's a mix of different things. She certainly wants that northern spectrum of sound. But I'm staring at somebody who knows a whole lot more about this than me as a Brooklynite, <laughs> formerly from Manhattan, since you, you're from uh, northern Brooklyn. Actually, I'm from south Brooklyn. But, um, well, but, but I, how do you think about that Irish question in her work? I mean, I yeah. I mean, it's, I'm from upstate New York, so I don't have any particular. But don't you but, you write about? Oh yeah, of course I know. Um, I meant as a scholar. Yeah, I think like one of the really important things about O'Sullivan's about O'Sullivan is is she she's a really important part of this kind of what I would consider a kind of a long line of 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 British and Irish nature poetry, right? From John Clare mm-hmm. to Hopkins, and John Clare, by the way, yeah. is supremely important. Yeah, for her. from John Clare to Hopkins to you know Basil Bunting, more recently someone like Colin Sims, Helen Macdonald, who write you know this kind of this kind of lyric, not lyric, just kind of poetic naturalism, or it, it, these are the wrong words, but this kind of nature writing that digs into the kind of into. <laughs> Kind of etymology and sound of language, as though as though it, it is things to play with in the ground. I'm really excited yeah. by your response to my question. Really excited because there's something political, historical, and the landscape. I mean, just landscape. We pick it's 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 bleak-ish, northern, craggy, um, and you know, it's there are houses of shamans. Um, and it's exciting because it is also against something without being negative, if I can put it that way. It is against a certain way that English has been used to round out a certain tradition of poetry that I sp- certainly here in the United States, casual students of poetry wouldn't even know about. And so we've just described a really important tradition here. Julia, do you want to take this question in your own way, this question about where this would fit for somebody who wants to learn about poetry where sound is so central? Yeah, I mean, my answer is a little more prosaic, I guess, but I'm thinking about someone new to this poem and how they might experience it as a, the, a kind of perfect example of how to read on lots of different levels, how to read with all of your senses, how to look at what's on the page and hear what's in the air on the recording, to look at the grammar and the punctuation, as well as the what's what feels metaphorical and what feels literal and what feels clipped and elliptical. And then I'm looking at this couplet on page 55, to live in the sky, to live underground, where the, the tone is actually really different in this couplet. And I always think about a couplet as significant. It's making a declaration. It's it, it, it has a whole genre to its own. And 
how beautifully declarative and kind of speculative and wondering that couplet is, uh, which speaks to the ideas in some in so much of O'Sullivan's work about transformation and transmutation and futurity. And the both, eagerly as little names of both, could be the sky and below ground. That's right. Both. Yeah. Little names of both. Um, okay, one more round before final thoughts. In this round, I'd like us to pick out a phrase or a word that just has to be put into the record that you noticed that you really wanted to talk about. And I'll start. Um, Blizzard multiples. I think Charles was talking about earlier, was talking about the blurring, the multiplicity that comes from blurring. Um, and I really like the way Blizzard multiples works there. Uh, it's really quite remarkable and almost metapoetic in referring to the way this aesthetic works. Eric, do you have a word or a phrase that you want to put in the record? Yeah, the the phrase, the hyphenated phrase, roll to run, at the, at the bottom of page 54 there. Because um, I think that gets a sense of, it, it's a kind of compact sonic, you know, kind of object in certain ways. But it also gets a sense of the kind of incessant movement um, that we get over a course, over a poem like this, where we are having to kind of traverse pretty vast spaces, even if we're just looking. Mm, um, mm, and, mm. and we're watching, we're watching not only kind of stuff and things and figures, but we're also watching motion and activity and, and, and things happening. Fantastic. Julia? Yeah, I'm going back to innards on stick, which is like a, a kind of funny, awkward, literal translation of a, of a musical bow. And so it's defamiliarizing at the same time that it's just literal. It's just like, yeah, that's what a bow is. That's what it's made out of. And so it's, I find it a witty line and also a kind of like less elegantly sonic line, but it's literally musical. So I like the, I like the constellation of all those qualities. If it's a string instrument and the paw is playing it, Mouthing, mouthing, mouthing like a paw becomes isn't really to interesting, yeah, exactly. right? The paw is mouthing that string. One, one and I think really about how wants a mouth to could know. paw too. A mouth could paw at you. It could paw at the bow. Yes. What kind of acoustic, as in acoustic guitar? What kind of acoustic is going to be the result of mouthing? It's fantastic to mm -hmm. consider. Charles, word or phrase? Uh, so, uh, mouthing, of course, is the at 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 stake overall, which is a different way of understanding voicings and the particular regional sounds, which I think it's it's true in the U.S. We some we have we understand the difference between Southern English and New England English, but it's it's a very marked class difference in England. So I just want to emphasize because it follows up on what you said, Al, that there's a definite class um, position that O'Sullivan is taking against. Southern English and its and its dominance and for the Irish and the the, the the most famous hook in a way for this, which I should have said before, would be of course Joyce uh, and Finnegan's Wake, River Run Past Even Adam. So River Run Past Even Adam is a kind of – could be an epigraph for Maggie. But related to that, the phrase I would give from – to our own day is prized linings. Now, it sounds when you read it like it would be something that you prize, a lining that you prize. But it's P-R-I-S-E-D, which is a different meaning and an obscure meaning. But the meaning is using a force to lift. So you almost don't need right. to say anything else beyond Pry that. something loose. But the lining, what is unseen underneath what is repressed, i.e. 
the, the mouthing of the North is, is aligning in all of our Englishes, including in America, and, and it's being forced up, lifted up through this uh, mm. uh, incredible poem. Uh, and the really. line of the poem. Say that again, of, Julie. And is the linings of the poem. Right? Yeah, and lines, lines and, lineation. Yeah. I really love that, Charles. I, I, I'm put in mind of Caroline Bergvall's using certain Englishes predating the Norman effect. Sure. Um, so getting – ironic for her because of her French background – uh, but well, the yeah, idea Fran- of but French and Norwegian going in back case. to yeah. yes, that's true, yeah. of course. But going back to an English or just rediscovering an English that was less influenced by the French, by the continent, and that is a kind of resistance in itself. Okay, we have time for final thoughts. This is a chance for us to say something that we came here today to say about these poems or about this poet, but haven't had a chance to yet. So who's got final thoughts? Well, I want to pick up on something Eric said when he said sacrifice because it's in this poem, but we didn't mention it. Uh, toward the end of the of the second of the three pages, the last part she reads, she has sacri. So this is specific um, underlining of a point that Eric made before and has to do with a whole range of the poem that we haven't really adequately a- acknowledged. But actually the line is – uh, sacri dosages invert reversionary morrow, the separate lines as, as Eric read. But I mean sacri dosages is more along my lines of a bad pun. In her case, it doesn't really work as a bad pun. But still, it does bring to mind sacerdotal, which is priestly, sacra being holy. And the holiness here is the inversion, uh, which also could be north for south or the profane because there's a whole lot of stuff we haven't talked about about the profane, the dirt, the mud, the excrement, which is being turned into something like sacra. Wonderful. Thank you, Charles. Julia, final thought? Yeah, final thought on those periods, those those wild periods that take the place of spaces between words. So in To Our Own Day, we get ill.me.me. Dot, dot, me, dot, glue, dot, me, dot, cloven. I didn't realize until I started speaking that I was going to call them dots more than periods. And Eric was just talking so beautifully about uses of periods and how some of them are full stops and some of them are not. And some of them take the place of segment, other kinds of segmentation. And they're, they're mysterious, but also really denotative in the way that we can expect points and dots to function, and I I really enjoy the movability of those periods in particular. As an editor, didn't it doesn't give you the heebie-jeebies a little bit? Well, sure, of course, at, at <laughs> first, and then and then I realize they're entirely intentional. That's great, thank you, Eric. Final thought? Yeah, I just I mean, one thing you know that we have talked about and also not talked about is the way in which Sullivan kind of um, choreographs space on the pages. And I think that's, I mean, it's so hard. It's obviously a, a, a dumb thing for me to talk about in, in a purely audio format. But I think one of the things that's so worth kind of reading as well as listening to Sullivan is that, it, that you know, the placement of, of words and word parts and phrases does significant work kind of at every moment, right? There's no kind of wasted space in these poems. Like every, you know, even even when we can't, as, as Charles said before, kind of decipher or read in any traditional conventional way, 
it isn't as though meaning making meaning making isn't happening. It's happening kind of at every moment and kind of in multiple ways. And I think one of the interesting ways in which, you know, you don't get a sense of this is just kind of of lines or parts of lines just kind of splayed all across the page, but you do get a sense of a kind of process being undertaken. So as much as, you know, the echo poetics that Charles mentioned before, the kind of sonic importance of her, of, of the importance of sound in her work, there's a sense in which there's also a kind of a leaning towards a, a, a pseudo or quasi concrete poetics where the kind of, the way that things are kind of spaced and scripted on the page matters all the time. Mm, fantastic. Thank you. Well, my final thought is is a not all the way thought through, um, <laughs> and that is uh, reference to the nailed eagles. Um, there is a tradition in, especially in northern climes, but not only, where uh, there's an agrarian superstition about if you take an eagle and you, or a hawk and you nail it to the front of your barn, you're going to protect the animals in the barn and you're going to ward off, um, you know, predators. And I can't figure out how it sets this poem up, but it, it gets us all the way down to resist, fan to resist. It takes me to feather against call, of course, pull feather against call, um, and twisted... It seems to me that the agrarian superstition is not effective at warding off the animalistic um, and uh, the basic, uh, the figuring that we have to do with animals um, as opposed to warding them off. This poem does not ward off those birds. There's birds flying all. It's almost Hitchcockian how many birds there are flying around. And they're not menacing, ultimately. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, a chance for all of us to spread wide our narrow Dickinsonian hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world or the music world or what have you. Who's got a gathering paradise. I can Julie, just, you ready? I can start. Yeah, I'm looking. I've been really enjoying this beautiful little book by Sebastian Castillo called Not I, which is published by Word West Press in Brooklyn, New York. And it's a very uh, it's a very playful book about grammar. It's Steinian and its repetition and playing with all the different tenses in the English language, simple present, simple past, simple future, and kind of obsessively retells or, or obsessively tries to tell a story using the different verb tenses. I'm not doing a terrific job of describing it, but I find it immensely pleasurable because of how how intentional and how um, referential it is about the structures of grammar. Sebastian Castillo, and the book is called Not I? Not I. That sounds really great. Thank you for that recommendation. Charles Bernstein, gather some... May I say that it's paradisal just seeing you today? Well, it's my great pleasure to be here. And back with you, Al. Um, Julia mentioned linings and in the sense of the way that the work visually looks on the page is also one of the things she's interested in, Magus Love is interested in. So I had mentioned Craig Dworkin's great um, Eclipse archive because um, 
Craig has digitized most of her early books, and those early books have actually drawings and visual works. So the books themselves are visual objects in which not just the linings of the words, but lines drawn are part of the work. And you can see that all along with a great deal of other stuff on the Eclipse archive. I, I, let me mention also uh, O'Sullivan's very important anthology, Out of Everywhere, one of the great anthologies of uh, women in a, women's innovative, wild uh, poetry, both um, U.S. Uh, and U.K. Fantastic. Eric? Well, maybe two books that I'll mention that just because they kind of – resonate with so much of the stuff we've been talking about today and, and, and kind of have been sort of mentioned before. Um, to go back to something that you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, I think Carolyn Bergvall's Metal English, um, M-E-D-D-L-E, is just a marvelous, a marvelous book. And that's certainly worth seeking out um, and, and reading. And another book kind of an, uh, that I've been re- looking at again lately um, in relation to something else that I'm kind of working on is Harriet Mullen's Muse and Drudge, which is an old not an oldie but a goodie but a great a great interesting book and that tackles the problem of how poems sound of of the sound of how poems sound in an utterly different way than say someone like O'Sullivan but is so seems so generative and worthwhile Um, so Muse and Drudge is a great book fantastic both great suggestions Metal English can we think of a favorite piece in Metal English Um, about foam about foam yes and cat in the throat, in the throat, which is really relevant. And Cat in the throat. Uh, Carolyn Bergvall was just here as a Kelly Writers House fellow for several days, and the recordings of that are probably already up. They are already available. Thank you for the for the mention. Well, my gathering paradise is actually Eric. You know, I have to tell you, Eric, that there's applause, quiet applause going on in here. Um, when you were coming east, it was Lynn Hajinian who wrote me and said, you really have to meet Eric. He's so great. And we did. We had coffee. And this, this episode is the result of our, of our connecting. And then I look at this book you have just given me, your book, Late Along the Edgelands. And it is published by Tumba Press, which is Lynn's press or the press she's associated with us. So I like the way this is coming full circle. And I have a copy of this book, thank you, and I wonder if I could cede my time, my Gathering Paradise time to you, and ask you to read the final poem of this book. Sure. sure. Okay, fantastic. I'm going to give you my own copy, and here it is. Um, The last poem in the book is called Out with Lanterns. Each eye beads on its own, like a road from damaged coiling traffic. Like four paths formed from gone shore at the forded underpass, each bead's eye goes its own. Life finds itself down. I heard all night and all the hours of it. Past the endless recession, we run cable down the littoral. Shoreward heavy sea traffic, like a road at dark we make of the interior worlds not ours. I've never felt myself precisely to be like that. You never made me taste the shore grit, never culled the days, never done a full run of cargo, and neither of us ever gave names. Like a filmic road, the bodies are at angles. The turn halfway up the hill was shot ahead. What's inexorable is nearly always found in wind. What's not is kept in copper or turned for use. You once had me stand the night for songs as you held all of the asphalt in your one hand. 
Ah, thank you very much. It's wonderful. Eric Fauci's book is called Late Along the Edgelands. It's published by Tumba Press. And that is all the Toys Is Us magicians we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk, that's supposed to be a funny line. You guys didn't laugh at that. You smiled. Well, that's all the Blizzard multiples we have time for. That's all the nailed eagles. That's all the reversionary morrow we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writers House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Julia Block, Eric Fauci, and Charles Bernstein, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same remarkable, talented, devoted, amazing Zach Cardner. <laughs> this is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us next month for another episode of Poem Talk.